Welcome to the mine. We are glad you are here tonight. We are going to have, I think, another great evening in the Word, and we're also going to start out with some great worship with Brian. Again, we're so glad Brian is here tonight. Yeah. So I hope you guys are ready to worship, because Brian is going to take over right now. Brian, good to have you here tonight, buddy. Thank you. Our God, we love you. We have come to indeed worship you tonight. God, I thank you for each that are here. I thank you for the, the privilege of being a part of the body of Christ. What an incredible honor. God, thank you that you believe in us enough to leave us the kingdom. Um, to, to build and to grow and to be a part of. Um, what, a, what a privilege. And tonight we want to sharpen our minds, um, not just so that our minds would get a little sharper, but God, so that we would be able to live out these incredible truths that we find in your word. And so, God, I pray tonight would not just be a night of filling our minds with knowledge that ends up just being futile, but God, that we would let the knowledge that we, that we sink in tonight, that we would let it affect and, and shape our lives, shape the way that we love people, shape the way that we that we care for the world. God, that you would give us eyes to see how we might be able to apply the things that we will learn tonight into our lives every day. And God, truly, that is worship, and we want to be worshipers. We want to be more than singers, because singing is not worship, but God, it's just merely a form. And so, God, tonight as we search your word, help us to think that we, um, God, are, are the worshipers um, that you are calling. That we be found true worshipers as we Grow and study your words tonight. Speak through Jeff, Holy Spirit. Just come and use him tonight in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Thank you, Brian. All right, Romans chapter 4. This is going to be very helpful for you to understand again tonight as far as where we're going. All right? Let me just remind you of what I call the three tenses of salvation. All right. In the book of Romans, when Paul uses the word justified or declared righteous, he is using that terminology to describe for us the time when we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal savior. That was the time we were justified or declared righteous. But then after that, the Bible talks about living out the life of Christ, the Christian life. It's the theological term sanctification. And there's many times in the book of Romans, in fact, most of the book of Romans deals with that part of our life, which is really cool because that's the practical part. I mean, for most of us, hopefully, we've already accepted Christ. That's justified. That's being declared righteous. But obviously, we're not dead yet. So that means we're not yet glorified. We're not with Christ yet. So we're in between being justified and being glorified. And that's that whole period called sanctified. All right. And that's what the book of Romans predominantly is about. It's about, all right, God, uh, yeah, I've been justified. I've been declared righteous. That, that saves me from the penalty of sin. But in all practical purposes, even as a Christian, I still struggle with sin. So where's the help there for that? And how does that all work out? All right. That's what that is all about in the book of Romans. Now, when we come to Romans chapter four, I don't want to spend a lot of time here because really Paul is talking here in Romans chapter four about this whole idea of justification. But he wants to explain something to us. He's using Abraham from the Old Testament because he wants to show us 
one of the questions I get all the time is, how were Old Testament saints saved? And my response is, based upon Romans chapter 4, people in the Old Testament were saved the same way we were, by faith. That's exactly what Paul's argument is throughout Romans chapter 4. He says, look, before Abraham was, was even the father of the Jewish nation, before he was even circumcised, uh, before all of this stuff, alright, God declared him righteous because Abraham believed God. That was it. And that's the way any Old Testament, I don't care whether you're talking about Noah or David or Moses or whoever, they were saved in a sense, they were brought into a right relationship with God because of their faith. Because the Bible teaches us, as we saw last week in Romans chapter 3, in fact, if you just turn there, uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 28, where Paul says, we consider that a person is declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. It has nothing to do with works. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, we are saved by grace. That grace is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All right. So we are saved by faith. Uh, and by God's grace, that's the way it's always been. That's the way it will always be. All right? We cannot earn our way to heaven. And to set forth such a powerful example, especially to a Jew who is so caught up many times in trying to you know, work their way to heaven or to attain it, he uses Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And he says, look, did Abraham come into a right relationship with God by works? No. He came by faith. In fact, notice there, chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh, has discovered regarding this matter? This matter of being, be, being declared righteous by faith apart from the works of the law. For if Abraham was declared righteous by the works of the law, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. And one of the reasons the Bible says why... We don't work our way to heaven is because if we could work our way to heaven and be good enough, then guess who gets the glory for it? We do. And it's not about us getting any glory. It's about giving God the glory. And that's why salvation is by grace through faith. Now notice verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, that word credited is an accounting term. It simply means that God not only forgives him his sin, but then puts into his account a righteousness that is not his own. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. Uh, and that's really what he goes through chapter 4 and talks about. Uh, you'll notice in verse 9, uh, he says, Is this blessedness then for the circumcision or also for the uncircumcision? And he says, Look, faith was credited to Abraham as righteous. How then was it credited to him? Was he circumcised at the time or not? No, he was not circumcised, but uncircumcised. In other words, it had nothing to do with any external rite or ritual. It had nothing to do with the law. All it had to do with was he believed what God said. He put his trust in God and God credited Abraham's account with the righteousness of God. And that's how he came into a relationship with God. That's how anyone who wants a relationship with God comes into that relationship. Now, the cool thing is tonight, we're going to see some real practical stuff about those of us who have been declared righteous. What are some of the benefits, if you will? What are some of the perks of being declared righteous before God? How does being declared righteous before God affect my everyday life here and now? We're going to talk about that. But before we do, 
I do want to go to this very important part of Romans chapter 4 that talks about Abraham's faith. Because remember, as we started our study a couple weeks ago about the book of Romans, uh, the way I sort of advertise this book is this book teaches us what a life defined by God looks like. We don't want others to define us. We don't want even to define ourselves. We just want to get to a point where we let God define what our life looks like. And, and one of the things that's going to define our life is our faith. It's going to be our faith. Uh, how much faith we are placing in God. How much we are trusting God. That is going to be one of the overarching themes of our life. When we get to the end of our life, did we trust God? Did we trust God? And so I want to go up to um, verse 17 of Romans chapter 4. Because in this really important passage, we learn several things about faith. The first thing we learn about faith in chapter 4, verse 17 of the book of Romans, is the object of our faith is what's so important. Not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith. Because our faith is only as strong as the object we put our faith in. That's why you'll notice for Abraham... The Bible says in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, and he is our father in the presence of God, whom he believed. You see, it wasn't what he believed as much as it was who he believed. He believed in a God, and he believed in a character of God. Notice, the God who can make the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. So you see there in verse 17 a very important principle about faith. And that is that faith defines our life. And one of the most important things about our faith then is the object of our faith. You see, a lot of times we want to focus on how much faith we've got. You know, how, what kind of amount of faith we got. But Jesus, remember what he said? He said, if you have faith the size of a what? You know how small mustard seed is? It's pretty small. So Jesus says, if you have faith just the size of a mustard seed and say to that mountain, move, it'll move because it's not the size of our faith that's as important as the object that we place our faith in. And then the whole message of the Bible is, folks, don't get all caught up on focusing on your faith. Spend all that energy focusing on the object of our faith. And that's God, the one who can raise the dead, the one who can call things into existence that don't yet exist. And that's what Abraham did. His faith was in God, in the character of God, and in the Word of God. It was who he was placing his faith in. We all know that we can place our faith in other things and other people, but they'll let us down. They'll disappoint us. They will fail. God never fails. His Word is always able to be trusted and counted upon. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't obstacles to our faith. In fact, one of the things that this passage points out is even though our faith can be in the right object, God, that that doesn't mean there's going to be some struggle going on and that there's not going to be some opposition to us continuing to trust God. Because notice verse 18. Against hope, Abraham believed in hope with the result that he became the father of many nations according to the pronouncement, so will your descendants be. Without being weak in faith, he considered his own body as dead because he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, here's the obstacles to Abraham's faith. 
If you go back to the book of Genesis, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Your ancestors are going to be as great as the sands, grains of sand on the seashore. Abraham goes, I, I like that. That's cool. How are you going to do that, God? Well, I'm going to start with you and Sarah. You're going to start having kids. A problem, God. I'm a hundred. She's ninety. She's never had children. There's an obstacle there. That's why the Bible says, very cool in verse 18, that without against hope, Abraham believed in hope. In other words, what he's simply saying there is, the normal, logical, human way, earthly way of looking at things is, nah, it ain't going to happen. Nah. And what God wants to get us to see is, don't ever let the circumstances and don't ever let any obstacle get in the way of trusting a God who can always override any of that stuff. You see, we get our eyes on the obstacles. And folks, every time God asks us to trust Him, there's always going to be obstacles. Or else, where's the faith? There's always going to be opposition. Where's the faith? And so God is calling us, His people, to define our lives by trusting Him even in the midst of opposition and obstacles. Even when on an earthly scale, Abraham and Sarah would be sent off to some therapist somewhere. You can imagine, they're going around to their relatives. God says, we're going to have kids. You're a hundred. You're, you're ninety. You've never even had kids. Now, all of a sudden, you're ninety years old and you're going to be fruitful? Come on! You know, it doesn't seem logical. But you see, again, let's go back to what we said before. When you and I put our faith in God and trust Him for the, for the unexpected, we trust Him for the impossible, we trust Him for all that, who gets the glory for it when it happens? He does. I want to be part of something so great that only God can get the glory for it. That there's no way that somehow man would go, oh, you know what, I think you guys did that. No, I want to be part of something so wild that no human being could sit back and go, well, you know what, maybe you guys did that. No, only God could do that. And that's what he was doing here. Only God could bring a baby out of Sarah's womb at this time. Now, look at verse 20. Here's the objective of our faith. He did not waver in unbelief about the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. There's the objective. There's the objective. God always wants us to trust Him in spite of opposition and obstacles. And the ultimate objective is, again, so that we can trust Him for the impossible, so that we can trust Him for things that are illogical, so we can trust Him for those things, so that He gets the glory for it, and we don't. Now, I want to go back to verse 20, because some would read that in the English translation and go, whoa, 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 whoa. That almost makes it sound like Abraham didn't struggle to believe this. And that's not what it's saying. Because we know if you read Genesis, he did struggle. He and Sarah both struggled to believe. But listen, folks, what this verse is simply saying is there were days where Abraham doubted. There were days where Sarah doubted. We're going to go back to that passage and see that. But the bottom line is they never got to the point where they settled in unbelief. That's what this phrase means. That's what this verse means. Oh, they had their doubts. You and I are going to have our doubts. You see, you and I are going to have those days where we struggle to keep trusting in God. All right. That doesn't mean that our faith 
you know, is it worth anything? We're human. God understands we're going to struggle and we're going to have our doubts. But here's the cool thing with God. Notice this phrase in verse 20. He did not waver in unbelief about the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith. That word strengthened is the same word power that we read about and studied in Romans chapter 1. Where, remember, Jesus Christ is a dividing line of history. He was appointed the Son of God with power. And He wants to give His children that power. Same word. Or in Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of God, for it is the power of God to be able to live out my salvation. Same word. Dynamite, if you will. It's the Greek word dunamis or dynamite, where we get the word... And God is saying... My power is available to you. And when you begin to struggle, when you begin to doubt, when you begin to waver, all right, I can strengthen you. Because this word is speaking about a strength that comes to us from an outside source. You see, it's not like we whip ourselves up on the inside and somehow, okay, God, I'm just going to like try to believe in you a little bit more. No, it's just in a sense, resting in the character of God and in the Word of God and allowing this strength to come from outside of me and strengthen me and build me up. That's what He did with Abraham. That's what He will do with you. And He'll do it through the presence of the Holy Spirit who actually now lives within us, you see. What a cool promise. So here tonight, if you're struggling a little bit, if you're, you know, God is saying, trust me on something in your life, And you're saying, God, I'm having a problem trusting you. Here's where the Bible is so practical. You and I can be strengthened by God Himself to continue to believe and not get to a point where we will totally just abandon and shut down trusting in God. Because Abraham had his bad days. Sarah had her bad days. But they never got to a point because they allowed God to continue to strengthen them through that process of where they said, now nah, it just can't happen. They never landed there permanently, even though they struggled there temporarily. Alright? So then we go to verse 21. He was fully convinced that what God promised He was able to do. So indeed it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. You see, he believed God. And God credited Abraham that righteousness. And I want to go back just real quickly up to verse 17 where we started here in this passage. Because those two things that, that Paul wrote about faith was really in play here. Because first of all, Abraham was 100 years old. As far as having seed and bearing children, he was dead. Okay, And so uh, Paul reminds us, but God can make the dead alive. And then, alright, Sarah's womb has been barren for 90 years And then Paul says, oh, and by the way, God can summon things that do not yet exist as though they already do. And God can begin to form that baby in Sarah's womb and make it all happen. That's the kind of God that we serve. Keep your finger there in Romans. We'll come right back and go back to the book of Genesis. To Genesis chapter 18. Because I want to share this with you tonight. God comes to Abraham in the Old Testament to give him this promise. God Himself and two angels comes to Abraham. And uh, God says in Genesis chapter 18, verse 9, Then they asked Him, Where is Sarah your wife? He replied, There in the tent. 
One of them said, I will surely return to you when the season comes around again, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent not far behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and advancing in years. Sarah had long since passed menopause. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, after I am worn out, will I have pleasure? Especially when my husband is old, too. This just ain't happening, folks. Now notice, if you doubt that this is God speaking, notice the next verse. Genesis 18.13 uses the covenant name for God. In fact, in your Bible, the word Lord is probably capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the name Jehovah God, the covenant name for God in the Old Testament. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child when I am old? Here's the key. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Don't forget that. You see, God wants to remind His people, I'm God. There is nothing impossible for me. And if I want something to happen, it'll happen. I don't care if you're 150 years old. I don't care if you were 400 years old. If I want to bring a child from you, I will bring it from you because nothing is impossible for God. And I hope here tonight that you all will be encouraged by that very statement in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. Because this is God saying, is anything impossible for the Lord? I will return to you when the season comes round again, and Sarah will have a son. Now, I love Sarah here. Verse 15. This is, we do the same thing. Sarah lied saying, I didn't laugh. Because <laughs> the Bible says she was afraid. But the Lord said, no, you did. You're not getting away with it. You did laugh, you see. You don't think it's going to happen. And, and if you know the story, you know that they did waver. They didn't do it exactly. You know, they didn't trust God. They had times where they wavered in believing. But at least they didn't settle there. They kept coming back to the fact that God was going to be able to do this supernaturally. Somehow, some way, He was going to be able to do this supernaturally. He was going to override the normal way of doing things. Which is really what every miracle God has ever done is. It's not that God doesn't create laws of nature for human beings to live within, but the God who created that law of nature, can He not override it whenever He feels like it? Of course He can. That's where miracles come in. And that's why the cool thing here is what Abraham learned through this, trusting God for this son in supernatural way, then enabled him later on when God told him, take your son, your only son Isaac, go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. Abraham says, come on Isaac, we're gone. Why did he not waver then? Because the faith that, that had been built into his life through this experience enabled him to navigate that experience a little more faithfully. And that's what God is looking for in our lives. That as we trust God in this part of my life, and we see that God is faithful, that hopefully the next time we need to trust God, we just continue to build our trust in God over our lifetime. And as we continue to trust God for great things, and things that just would blow other people's minds, God keeps saying, keep trusting, because is anything too hard for the Lord. And as we trust Him in this 
point of our life, it's going to set us up to trust Him even more here. And then as I trust Him here, it's going to set me up to trust Him even more down here. Because all through my life, all that God is looking for is for me just to continue to trust Him. And to trust Him more deeply. And to trust Him more consistently. And just to trust. Just to trust. Back to Romans. So faith certainly defines our life. But then as we move into chapter 5, and I'm just going to stop after, after verse 1 and then any comments or questions. Here begins this great passage of Scripture where Paul says, Now, now that we've established how we are declared righteous by God, it's not by works, it's by faith. And, and how faith can totally define who I am as a human being. Alright? And let me just make this comment I usually do when I teach about faith. There's only one thing in the New Testament that the Bible ever says Jesus marveled at. Only one thing. Faith. That's it. That's the only thing that the Bible says Jesus marveled at. It was either the belief or the unbelief of people. That was the only thing that the Bible says Jesus ever marveled at. That's how important it is. Hebrews 11 verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For we who come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him and who trust Him. Alright? Faith will define us. But there's something else then. Once I am declared righteous before God, notice what else Paul says here. Really cool. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, past tense, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. So important. You see, I can't have peace with God until I'm declared righteous. Until I come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible clearly teaches that before I come to Christ, I'm actually an enemy of God. Now, there's a lot of people today that they don't want to hear that but that's what the Bible teaches. Look at verse 10 of Romans 5, if you don't believe me. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were what? Enemies. We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. How much more since we have been reconciled will we be saved by His life? You see, we, before we came to Christ, were in opposition to God. That's why the Bible uses the word enemy. We were opposed to God. And when we heard the message of the truth of Jesus Christ, we had a choice of whether to, by faith, believe it and accept it and embrace it or reject it. And the Bible says that when you and I embrace the truth of Jesus Christ, then that wall, that barrier of sin between me, a sinful human being, and a holy God is now wiped away through the blood of Jesus Christ, so that I can have a relationship with the Holy God. There's no other way to do it. And then one of the cool byproducts of that hooking up with God in my life is I have peace with God. Let me just say, the Bible never promises us peace in the world, peace with each other, peace at school, peace at work, peace in our neighborhood. But the Bible says, I can navigate a world where there is no peace a lot better when I know that at least between me and God, there is peace. 
See, when I lay my head down on that pillow at night, and I know that between me and God, everything's okay, the world may be falling apart. But if me and God have peace, it's okay. And that's one of the great byproducts of being declared righteous. Peace with God. I'm no longer opposed to God. I embrace God. I embrace His Son. I embrace His truth. And now I have peace with God. And folks, here's the cool thing. Not to to get out of Romans too much, but the only way I can experience the peace of God, Philippians chapter 4, that passes all understanding, that mental tranquility that this world is really looking for today, the only way I can experience the peace of God is if I truly have peace with God. And what's one of the things that human beings are looking for today? Peace. And not just a a lack of hostility between human beings. They're looking for an internal peace. They're looking for a tranquility of mind. Folks, I know as a pastor and counselor for 23 years, it's always been bad for the last 23 years. It's getting worse. I mean, people are doing everything they can to try to create a tranquility of mind. Whether it's through pills, whether it's through other coping mechanisms, whether it's through, I don't know, you just name it. I don't even want to start naming because there's all kinds of ways that our world is looking for a tranquility of mind. The kind of peace of God and peace with God to where after their day they can go home at night, they can lay their head down on the pillow, and they can really get a good night's sleep without being in angst and anxiety and all of this. That's what the world is. That's the number one thing that the world's looking for. And God offers it. He offers it right here. You and I can have peace with God and then in turn have the peace of God if we will simply by faith believe what He says. Peace. This Greek word peace is the word irene, E-I-R-E-N-E. It is a word that literally means to bind together. It's a cool word picture. It's like, again, God and I were far apart, but now through Jesus Christ, we're sort of like, we're like that three-legged race, only hopefully God's the two-legged one and I'm the one-legged one, you know? But God sort of wraps our lives up together And we go through life never being alone again. That's why the Bible says you can have peace no matter what your circumstances because I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can have peace because you know I'm never going to abandon you. I'm never going to change my mind about you. My love for you is unconditional. So you can have peace. In the world, Jesus says, John 16.33, you will have tribulation. You will have trial. Jesus never promised us that we wouldn't have trouble on earth. But He says, in Me, you can have peace. Be of good cheer. He says, I have overcome the world. And if Jesus has overcome the world, is anything too hard for Him? You can have peace. But again, notice how it comes, verse 1. It only comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, a great study to do sometime is to take the phrase through our Lord Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ and somehow be able to, you know, put that into your computer and have it spit out how many times that phrase is used and then study all those verses. You would be amazed 
how rich we are in God because it's through the Lord. What, what we have through the Lord. You know, we have this through the Lord. Uh, we have that through the Lord. Everything we have is through the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great God. I hope you have peace tonight. I hope you have... Because here's one of the other things that's going to define your life. Not only is your faith going to define your life, peace is going to define your life. Especially in the world in which we live. Because folks, the world's not going to get any better. Okay? So when people in this world today have a peace of mind and a tranquility of mind, and between them and God everything is okay, do you realize how they're going to stand out? Because everybody else is walking through life like tighter than a drum. I mean, you can just see it. I mean, I see people walking into coffee shops and it's like, here's your coffee. You know? You know, I mean, they're just like, they wake up that way. All of you that work at Starbucks, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, people just, they wake up. You know why? Because they never really were able to unwind all evening or even during the night while they slept. So they wake up just as just full of knots as they did when they went to bed. There's no peace in their life. They're trying to find peace. They trying all these things to get it, can't get it. And here we are going, and they're going, what's up with that? First of all, they're probably thinking we're on some kind of drugs. And I tell them, yeah, I'm on Jesus, you know. It's through Jesus that I have this joy and this peace. Because, yeah, sometimes life stinks. But my joy and my peace doesn't come from my circumstances. It comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus. And let's remember something. I was talking to Sue, those folks over here before the mine. Don't forget, there's only one being in the universe that can never change. That's God. The Bible teaches that God is immutable. That's one of His attributes. That's why Hebrews says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can't change. But guess what? Everything else can. So there's no stability anywhere else to find that stability other than in Jesus Christ. He's our anchor. That's why Hebrews 6.19 says we have an anchor for our soul. That anchor is Jesus Christ and the peace that He can give you. And that peace will define your life. I guarantee if you have the peace of God and the peace, and you have peace with God, you will stand out. You will stand out in your neighborhood, at work, at school. You'll even stand out at church. Because <laughs> there's a lot of people who come to church. They don't have peace. So, you'll stand out. It will define who you are. All right. Yes. Amen. What are you doing after the mine tonight? Would you like to go out for ice cream? No. For those of you that don't know, that's my wife back there. That's true. Can I say that then? Can I, can I share something with you since you said that? Let me take you over then to verse 8, 9, 10 of Romans chapter 5. Because that's exactly what... Here's what Paul really wants to encourage us with. He's saying, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to start up in verse 6. 
while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. Christ demonstrated His love for me even while I was an enemy. I didn't want anything to do with God, but Jesus demonstrated His love. But now don't miss this. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul uses this phrase over and over again. He's saying, okay, that's what God did for you in justification. And he's always arguing from the lesser, in a sense, to the greater. He's saying, okay, here's what God did for you when you were justified, when you were declared righteous. He loved you so much that even while, Jeff Royce, you were a sinner and you were at enmity with God and you were opposed to God, He died for you. So, so much more then, verse 9, because we have now been declared righteous by His blood. Okay, past tense. So we're not talking now here in just a minute about salvation anymore. That was already done when we accepted Christ. Notice the language. We will be saved through Him from God's wrath. And that's talking about the here and now. You see, when it says we will be saved, wait a minute, I thought I was saved. Yeah, but don't forget, saved has three tenses. Salvation has three tenses. And this part of verse 9 is not talking about the time we were justified, declared righteous, accepted Christ as our Savior. This phrase is talking about the sanctification part. And he's saying to us, I will give you the power you need to be saved during this time from the grip of sin. From being anxious when you don't need to be anxious. From worrying when you don't need to worry. All those things. I will say, if I did that for you when you were justified or declared righteous, how much more, Paul said, will I not be available to you to live this Christian life? You see, I think some of us get the idea that God was with me when I got saved, but then He sort of just lets me out there and lets me, you know, paddle all alone this whole Christian life. No. What the Bible teaches is just the opposite. If you think God met you when you came to Christ, you've got to understand He's even with you more now so that you and I can live out the life of Christ. Wow, I'm sorry, that just excites me. <laughs> Notice then verse 10, he repeats it just using a little bit different language. He says, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Again, notice the language. How much more since we have been reconciled? We came to Christ in salvation. Will we be saved by His life? Meaning the time between I'm justified and I'm glorified, God says, I'm going to be there with you too. I'm with you through the whole process. I didn't just get you started and wind you up and let you go off on your own. He says, I was with you in a special way when you came to Christ. I'm going to be with you every step of the way during your earthly life as you walk with Christ. And then I'm going to take you to heaven. And I'm going to be with you all the way through eternity. And there's never going to be a time where God is not making Himself available to us and to the degree that we need Him to. If we need this much power to navigate this terrible thing in my life, then God does this. God does this. In fact, sorry, I just got to go. <laughs> go over to verse 20. Go over to verse 20. Sorry, I just... We'll go back to chapter 5, the early verses, but I just... In 520, now the law came in so that the awareness of transgression may increase. That's what that verse means. It's not like, okay, God gave us a law, so we sin more. 
No, it just means that when God gave us a law, humankind became more aware of them falling short of the standard of God. But notice this. But where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. Or as some translations say, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And all God is saying there is, you show me sin. Okay, guess what? I'll more than match it. I'll more than match it. So that nobody in this room can say, God, I'm struggling with this sin and on a scale of 1 to 10, it's a 9. It's a 9. God would say, guess what then? I'm giving you a grace of 10. I will always trump whatever, whatever level of sin you're struggling with, whatever doubt, whatever fear, whatever you're struggling with, my grace will be available to you to more than meet that need. Because again, as we've said in our study of the book of Romans, whatever there is in my life, it is a barrier between me and God. God says, I want to get rid of that. Because I want to have fellowship with you. This isn't just about getting to heaven and having a relationship when we get there. It's about walking in communion with me right here and now in an intimate way. And the only way we can do that is so that I can begin to get rid of all these barriers in your life that come between me and you. So if I have a barrier in my life that's keeping my fellowship apart from God, God says, I'll give you the grace. Because where sin abounds, grace does much more. That's why we can give people hope at a church like this. That's why I can give people hope when I'm out there in the world. I can say, listen, I don't care what you're struggling with. God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater. It's magnificent. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Your grace is enough as we sing here at Cornerstone. And it is. And we've got to remember that. And so God says, whatever you're navigating right now in your life, sin abounds, but my grace super abounds. It always trumps whatever we're struggling with. So that, verse 21, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That verse is simply teaching. God gives us His grace so we can be righteous like Him in this life so we can escape the wrath that comes from disobedience to God, which goes back to Romans chapter 5, verse 9. There it is. Sorry, had to say that and we went off on all Yes, that's a great question. Let me answer that this way. Turn to 1 Timothy. I'm going to go back to something I shared, I think, the first week, but then I want to add to that. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, that's a great question. Let me answer that in two ways. First of all, if you didn't hear over here, the question was, okay, you've got somebody who continually struggles with something. They say they're turning it over to the Lord, but it seems like they just continue to struggle and spin their wheels. How do they get past that? What's the, what's the, what's the formula? Yeah, yeah. Here, here it is. I think we make a mistake as Christians... And, and I know a lot of it is semantical, but we make the mistake as Christians, I believe, when we say something like, I'm, I'm just giving that over to the Lord. Because here's what God says to us, I, I think, about that. It's like, look, as we've seen it, I'm here to help you, but, but, but don't play this game of life with me like uh, you're the quarterback and I'm the running back and you've got this problem. And once you get the football from the center, you're just going to hand it off to me and then just sit back and go, hey, God, you go score the touchdown. And then when we continue to struggle, we look to God and go, well, 
I gave it to God, and, and how comes then I'm still in Because God doesn't want us to just hand the ball off to Him and let Him score the touchdown. He wants to give us the satisfaction and the victory and the joy of scoring the touchdown with Him. So God would say, here's what I want to do. I, I don't mind if you get the ball from the center and maybe... Ha- but then, weird, because this wouldn't happen in real football, but... We hand it, and God and I both carry the ball in to score the touchdown. It's, it's cooperating with God. It's not just, oh, I've got this problem, God, here it is, almost like it's your problem now. You, no, God says, I've got to build into your life what you need so that you can be stronger so that when this next thing comes up in your life that's a hurdle, an obstacle to your faith, an opposition to your faith, you will then have the, the strength from that experience of running with me down the field to score the touchdown. You'll have a better uh, ability to be able to do that. And I go back to something I shared, I think, in week one here, where look at verse 7 of First Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says that we are to train ourselves for godliness. All right? Train yourself for godliness. Now... I hear a lot of Christians who say, Jeff, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. And I say, it's not in trying, it's in what? Training. Training. Thank you. Somebody listened, week one. Yeah. It's not in trying. It's in training. And the Greek word there in 1 Timothy 4.7 is the word gymnazo, where we get the word gymnasium from. And literally what God is saying is, here's how you overcome that. You allow me to come in and help and be here alongside of you as you go into the spiritual gym. But then you've got to discipline yourself to go into spiritual training and get yourself into spiritual shape. And that's your responsibility, God would say. That's not mine. I've given you all the resources you need. I've given you all the cardio equipment and all the workout equipment and all the weight equipment and stuff so that you can get yourself into spiritual shape and keep yourself into spiritual shape but it's up to me to avail myself of those resources every day. Training, training, training. Discipline, discipline, discipline. As I use, I think, week one, the example, I said, if I had, if I had to run this marathon 26 miles next week, and I said, I'm really going to try, do you know how far I'd get? Even trying really hard? Maybe 100 yards. Okay? I'm out of shape. All right? But if next year I say, I'm going to run that marathon and beginning today, I'm going to go into training, I still might not hit all 26 miles, but I'm going to get a lot further down the road because I went into training for a whole year. And so it sets myself up for better success. Same thing is true spiritually, folks. If you're struggling with some habit or some sin that just keeps knocking you down, the best advice I can give you is, Don't just give it over to God as if now it's His ball to run with and you have nothing to do and enter yourself into training. And you will be amazed if you and I enter into that spiritual gymnasium each and every day and do our spiritual workout that in a couple weeks even and in a couple months, we're going to see, man, I'm in better spiritual shape than I've ever been in. And then we keep on going. Can you imagine if you went into the spiritual gym every day what you would look like in a couple years? Man, you'd be like balked up, you know? Look at that guy, man. He is, he's pumped spiritually, you know? Because that's what God says. Train yourself for godliness. 
I think part of the problem, and you, you hit the nail on the head, Nancy, about quick fix. We want God to turn us into super Christian overnight, you know. Here I am, the struggling Christian. Now, God, here I am, just take me, whatever. And we expect God to take us from A to Z. And God says, no, no, that, that, see, that, what good is that doing you? If I pick you up and literally throw you over here, you're, you're over there, but you're just as weak over there as you were over here. Where if you and I go into training, you realize how much stronger you are once you and I get to that point. And again, we never have to train alone. We are cooperating with God in our training and He's giving us all the strength and all the grace that we need. But we're going to be much stronger if we go into that spiritual training than we just try real hard. And that's what you guys are doing. That's what the mind is. That's why we need more people to come to the mind. Because we've got people in our church, in our community, they're still trying. And Tuesday night is more about training than trying. It's, it's getting into the spiritual gym and doing a little few push-ups. You see? All right. Yes. Yeah, temptation is never sin. We'll, we'll be tempted for the rest of our life. It's giving into the temptation that's sin. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what he does. He doesn't necessarily change our circumstances, but he makes us stronger to be able to handle the circumstances. Which really, though we don't like that, that actually benefits us better and makes us stronger. Makes, I mean, let's face it. Did Jesus have an easy life as the Son of God? I don't think so. You know? And so Jesus says, I don't think that my disciples are going to have an easier life than I did. So if I suffer and I go through tribulation while I was here on earth and I had to go through, pers- I have to do all that. Doesn't it make sense that those who follow me are going to have to follow down the same path? And the cool thing is he did it just to prove that he was the sinless son of God. He didn't have to become good. He already was. But we do it so that we can become more like Christ. There's another hand back here. Yes. I think, and and we're going to get to that, I think that they have a total misunderstanding of grace. Because a lot of people think that this grace somehow gives them a license to be able to sin and live however they want to. And if they understood what grace was, grace, as we learn from the book of Romans, is just the opposite. It is the power to break sin in our life. In fact, not to get way ahead of myself, I will come back to Romans 5, but just for the few moments we got left, let's go to that. Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 1 and 2. Paul could not use stronger language here about that very point. So, Paul says, you know, at the end of chapter 5, so grace multiplies as I sin. So, he, he gets the objection. So, some people in Rome are going to say, okay, if God's grace multiplies and I sin, then the more I sin, the more God's grace multiplies. So, doesn't that make God's grace look good? Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? What's Paul say? Absolutely not. And I want to stop right there before I do the next sentence. It is the strongest negation in the Greek language possible. In other words, Paul could not have chosen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, stronger negative words than the words he uses that in my Bible is the first two words of verse 2. 
it is the it's like saying you totally miss what God's grace is all about. Because then notice he goes on at the end of verse two to say this. How can we who died to sin live in it? Now, I realize we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I just want to say this. We are learning that God gives us this power and this grace to break the grip of sin over us, even as Christians. So again, the Christian has this wonderful, these wonderful resources available to us so that sin doesn't have to wrap around me like a boa constrictor and just keep me from being all that God created me to be, which is what the Bible teaches about sin. Book of Proverbs says that we are held by the cords of our own sin. In other words, as I allow sin to become a part of my life, I think I can manage it, but it takes over my life, and then all of a sudden, it totally just, it, I lose my freedom. I'm not free. I'm a slave to that sin. And so the Bible teaches, look, the child of God, God is grieved when he sees his children who have been set free in Jesus Christ, who've been declared righteous, who positionally are in heaven as far as God is concerned, and who have the righteousness of God and then have the power of God and the grace of God available to Him. Can you imagine how it grieves God to see His children letting sin totally overwhelm their life when we don't have to? I mean, that's just like, they're like, oh, you don't have to live that way. God says, my power and my grace is available to you so that you don't have to go down in there in the gutter and have that sin destroy your life and defeat you time after time. You as a child of God can see victory. In fact, let me share this with you. Got to share this with you. Go back to these great verses in Romans chapter 5 and we'll pick it up in Romans 5 next week. Paul uses kingly language here to speak of sin and righteousness. And he's basically saying to the Christian, who are you allowing to be king in your life? Are you allowing sin to be king or are you allowing righteousness to be king? And here's what God's Word says to all of us who are children of God. We reign. We could say we rock. <laughs> but we reign. As far as God is concerned, through Christ again, not through us, through Christ, we reign. R-E-I-G-N. Notice, verse 17. These are some of the greatest verses for me personally in all the Bible. For if by the transgression of the one man, death reigned through the one, sin dominated our life. Death dominated our life. It was the result of letting sin be king. Here's that phrase again. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in this life through the one Jesus Christ? You see, he's not talking there about reigning when we get to heaven. Folks, he's talking about Christians who are reigning right here and now on earth who have through the power and blood and grace of God defeated sin in their life and they are reigning because of the power of Jesus Christ. They are seeing victory in their life, not defeat. That's what God wants to see for His children. That's where the peace can come from. That's where the joy can come from. That's where all these great things that God has for us in this wonderful, eternal, abundant life. And God wants us to realize that we can reign. And don't let anybody tell you you can't reign because God's Word says we 
can reign in life through Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Who shall deliver me from this body of death, Paul says in Romans 8. Thanks be to God who gives me the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ we reign. And God wants to see His children reign. He doesn't want to see us live as paupers. He wants to see His children reign and live as the kings and queens that God intends for His children to live like. Let's live like the kings and queens of God through Jesus Christ. Yes. No, you're right. And that brings up the point I'll close with, and that is this. Remember this. God is not as concerned as we are about the product as much as He is the process to get there. All we care about is the product. You know, just get me there, God. And God says, but don't you realize that the process that I use to get you there is what's really going to strengthen you to the point where then you can jump off of there and even go further with me. Guys, I love you. You've been great. Let's close in prayer and let's see each other here next week again. God, we thank You so much for Your Word that reminds us that as children of You, we reign in this life. And God, help us to look at our life that way. To not limit ourselves by our own frailty and our own failures. Help us to look in faith to You, the God that there is nothing impossible and, and I don't need to be held back by me or anybody else, but I can just let you take me and we can, we can begin to reign. Right here, right now. God, so many people need to hear this message. And I just pray that even in this room tonight, that there would be a group of us that would just so live this out, that we would be an example all over Chandler, all over Cornerstone, all over everywhere we go. That God's children can... It's not that we're perfect. It's not that we're not going to struggle like Abraham and Sarah at times. But ultimately, we're going to land trusting You. And not ultimately be defeated by these things that so want to keep us from being who You created us to be in Jesus Christ. God, go with us this week. Give us a great week of victory in Jesus, we pray in His name. Amen. Amen. Guys, you're great. I love you. Have a great week.